Hello and welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group, with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. So please like and subscribe, share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, in today's episode, join me to uncover the story of Noj Bio, a visionary startup that is creating sustainability opportunities in the food industry. The groundbreaking innovation, fermentation technology, they are on a mission to make alternative proteins both available and desirable. This new podcast episode, I sat down with Tim Fronzek, co-founder and CEO of Noj Bio. This journey is filled with bold entrepreneurship, sporting discipline, and a deep-rooted drive for environmental impact. Listen as he shares his path from athlete to CEO and how personal passion fuels his professional mission. We will also dive into the food industry's hefty environmental toll and learn about Nojbayo fungi-based innovation impact. Also, talk with Tim about the regulatory framework as well as the market incentives and limitations. Let's discover together strategy to disturb the market and upcoming initiatives that could propel us into a new era of sustainability. Get an insider look at how they plan to bring delicious, eco-friendly options to plates worldwide and tune in to be part of the conversation that could change the way we eat forever. In the second part of the show, Tim shares his previous fundraising experience and the importance of focusing on the rationales of the business model rather than solely focusing on the values. Regarding work-life balance, Tim also shared with us how implementing some daily habits have significantly simplified his life. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about this exciting adventure that you have with Noj Bio, which is on the mission to enable and speed up sustainable transition from animal-based to animal-free diets by providing techno-functional ingredients, sorry about that, for alternative proteins products to improve their quality and increase the consumer's acceptance. So welcome to the show. Looks very exciting. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot. So that's a tradition on the, on the show. If you could give us a 30 second intro, a little bit more elaborate about the one that I give you uh, about Noj Bio. Thank you. Sure. Noj Bio is a B2B startup that leverages natural fermentation and non-GMI fungi to produce highly functional food ingredients. As you correctly mentioned already, with the focus on animal-free products and um, trying to help those products to improve the quality profiles in terms of taste, texture, nutritional values, length of ingredients, labels, and finally also the price. 
Let's start from the from the top. In this show, we always like to first put the focus on the, the guest. So if you can maybe share with us a little bit more about your personal story and background. I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides uh, building a Nosh Bio? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or your best self? As I always ask, who is Tim? <laughs> yeah, so um, I would say what uh, what inspires me or, or what uh, consumes most of my time besides uh, the business is, is doing sports. Um, so that's a huge part of my life, but also my family. I have two kids. I have a dog, uh, married, a house, a garden. So that also consumes a lot of time. Um, but beside that, I'm really kind of an entrepreneur by heart. So it's um, uh, already the second um, bigger company uh, that I've incorporated. So obviously, um, if you are an entrepreneur, start to run your own business. Um, there is not too much time left and that you can spend on other things. So, Tim, tell us a little bit more about uh, your personal experience prior starting uh, Nush Bio. I mean... This work-life uh, balance, and you mentioned yourself that uh, you already you know, started a successful company prior to uh, the launch of Nosh Bio. So maybe looking back, back at that, uh, that journey in itself, uh, do you have maybe one or two pieces of uh, experience that you would like to, uh, to share that in a way gave you an edge to uh, start the company? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, um, maybe first of all, uh, I mentioned sports. Uh, already so before my entrepreneurial career um, I was doing a, a sport not very popular not very famous uh, not meant to earn money but I did it uh, professionally so four days of training a week um, a lot of traveling um, also a lot of passion uh, in it uh, and I think that kind of uh, was a good uh, training ground um, to become an entrepreneur because from my experience very often it is really about having this bite and really to overcome obstacles and and uh, tackle the challenges um, that, that you are faced with, which you can learn from my perspective pretty well uh, if you do sports. Um, and then when I uh, studied business administration, so I'm, uh, I'm having a business background. Um, I studied business administration back in 2003. Um, two friends of mine uh, who were uh, sharing the same courses at the university uh, were considering to start a business. Um, and yeah, we just decided to join forces. So I supported them um, and we started running an online retailer for pre-owned consumer electronics. And what really kind of uh, what I remember quite well is when I uh, think back, I mean, I'm having a business background and I know that um, earning money with what you do is always part of the game. Um, but already back then, we had this idea of um, extending product uh, life cycles uh, just in order to reduce the carbon footprint of mass consumption. And this was really kind of what what drove us um, to build the company. And also, I mean, I was with that company for a bit more than 15 years um, to have this uh, breath to really push it to the success uh, that it now has. So the company is making 200 million in revenues, is profitable, employing 700 people. So it's, it's really kind of a success story. And this impact um, was the main motivation for that. And I would say, um, for me, this is the perfect combination. On the one hand, yes, and being an entrepreneur is something that really um, needs a lot of passion and also a lot of energy. Um, but on the other hand, um, to know that you can have this impact and um, yeah, just make, sounds maybe a bit um, uh, stupid, but just make the world a little better. Uh, that's really what, what for me is um, a lot of fun. So before we start going into the, the detail about uh, Nosh Bio, we'd like to zoom out and kind of understand the, the overall context uh, that you guys are surfing on. And especially before the, the call, we decided to cover a bit more uh, deeper the alternative protein industry today and its potential in terms of impact in the fight against climate change. So maybe to put things back into, uh, into perspective, can you start by giving us the general contribution of the traditional, I would say, animal uh, protein uh, in itself in terms of GSG and impact on the environment to really kind of like frame uh, the problem and try to understand with the different path, like what are the, the solutions? So maybe let's start with some data point here if you have uh, to, to share with us. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, um, the food industry um, is one of the main contributors into global greenhouse gas emissions. And I have to admit that I was not 100% aware of that um, 
um, importance um, that the uh, food industry um, is having in this in this um, problem. Um, but we are talking about more than 30% of all greenhouse gases, which is coming from the food industry. I mean, obviously, uh, including all the logistics and trans transportation systems, um, the feeding, um, industrial animal farming is a huge contributor. Um, so um, the importance of the industry is is really huge. Um, and this is, I mean, when, when I realized um, how prominent the role of the food industry in that climate change game really is, for me, it was kind of an easy decision um, to take um, the decision to invest my entrepreneurial energy into that space. Um, but also, from my perspective, what I do see, I mean, and you just mentioned the alternative protein space, I think um, if you take a deeper look into that, um, there has been, I don't know, six billion of equity being deployed um, in the space of alternative proteins over the last five, five and a half years already. Um, there's more than a thousand teams, um, very smart teams working on their innovations. But if you take a look onto the question, um, how advanced are we already in, in providing mass market ready solutions to, to bring this impact into the industry? I think we are not even scratching the surface, like taking the meat market, for example. And what is important, we are not only talking about meat because almost in any food product, there is animal based ingredients included, no matter if it's beverages, if it's bakery, if it's convenience, confectionery, dairy. So you have it everywhere. But I think the meat market makes it um, most obvious. Um, the meat industry is roughly 1.3 trillion US dollars big in revenues per year. And um, animal free meat analogs doesn't even sum up to 10 billion. So we are talking about a market share that is not even a percentage big, which is just insignificantly small. So um, nonetheless, we have a lot of teams, um, a lot of smart teams again, and a lot of equity being deployed in this space. Obviously, we are quite far away from mass market ready solutions um, to bring this impact. Um, and yeah, this was kind of the moment when when we realized, okay, um, obviously um, the space needs some more help. And if you compare it also to other industries, um, renewables, mobility, real estate, um, I think the markets are more advanced in terms of bringing mass market ready solutions to the table that can really have an impact. Um, but for the food industry, from my perspective, this is a little different. Uh, different, and this is what we are trying to tackle, and where we took the decision. Okay, let's focus on that space. Mm -hmm. So, to go one step um, deeper in that understanding, I like to double click a little bit on the uh, trying to understand uh, today, and if you could maybe like share that with the audience a little bit, like the main difference in terms of uh, plant-based protein uh, technologies in use today, what is the, the market penetration that they uh, they represent, and some of their maybe advantages and, and limitations that you uh, you see. And after that, maybe let's speak about, uh, you know, the upcoming innovation. So what is it uh, in use today? Because, I mean, you go into uh, uh, any grocery stores and you can uh, see a lot of like uh, different solutions already uh, in place. And what's the what's the future? So let's start maybe with uh, what is it today? Yeah, um, I mean, um, as you said, there there is a um, a lot of solutions on the table. I think um, if you take a look on the whole food industry, um, maybe the dairy part needs to be treated a little different because I think um, plant based milks um, show bigger success in order to to really tackle mass markets um, than in the most other verticals. Um, I think we are talking about a market share of almost 10% already, so more successful than, than others, specifically for milk. Um, but for the rest, um, yeah, as I said, we are um, not even scratching the surface. And um, I mean, what can those products um, bring to the table? I mean, first of all, uh, depending on which product, obviously, if it's plant-based, it's different from um, fermented products or, or, I mean, cultivated are not yet available on the market. But um, the carbon footprint is a little different, but definitely better than the conventional animal-based products, no matter which one you take a look at. Um, but I think the challenge that those products have, and it's it's more or less for all of those, you can only build your products on the ingredients that are readily available. And um, if you do not want to use animal material, and if you want to produce animal-free products, you cannot. 
um, then you simply have a, a limitation on the ingredients you can build your product on. And those ingredients only allow you to bring the quality of the product to a certain level, but not, not further. So um, which makes those products. And I changed my diet um, now three and a half years ago by myself. So I know what I'm talking about. So those products typically do not taste as pleasant as their animal counterparts. If you have it in your mouth, like the whole mouth feel, the chewing experience, it's not comparable. It just feels a bit strange, a bit mushy, a bit, yeah, just awkward in a way. So not very pleasant. Um, then also nutritional values are not on par. So typically the protein content is significantly lower. Um, then also health aspects. Um, so, I mean, you might consider if you consume um, predominantly animal-free products that you eat healthier, but it's not necessarily the case because a lot of those products need to rely on chemical additives, which are not healthy at all. Um, I mean, some of them uh, might even uh, be unhealthy. I mean, there are some studies going on um, so, but I mean, uh, some of them are at least not digestible. Um, so they bring zero nutritional values to the table. Um, you have those very long ingredients labels with a lot of E numbers on it typically. And if that would not be enough <laughs> to make those products unappealing, you have to even pay a premium uh, on top compared to the animal counterparts. So you get a product that doesn't taste as good, it's not as healthy as good, doesn't feel as good, and then you have to pay more for it. Uh, so I think that's that's the situation today from my perspective with, with very little exceptions. So looking at the, the, the near future and upcoming innovations uh, in said that you, you guys are, are seeing in the, in the market, I mean, if you could sh share with us maybe some emerging, uh, you know, technology and alternative to, uh, to those animal, uh, you know, uh, based uh, protein based product in itself, I mean, do you see like some emerging uh, categories there or like uh, a type of technology that really are uh, getting close to uh, commercialization already uh, in use? Uh, how is the, the future looking like? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, getting back to the plant-based um, products, uh, I th as I said, I think there are some that are, that are okay-ish in a way. Uh, I mean, not super pleasant, um, but those products, typically have, let's say, within uh, fermented plant-based and, uh, and cultivated products, most likely the, um, the worst uh, um, um, carbon footprint. Because, uh, like, first of all, you also have to grow the crops somewhere um, and you have all the carbon emissions that is uh, attached to, to, to growing crops, uh, the transportation uh, as well. And then, um, like, the... The molecule structure of of plant proteins typically does do not have the same stability and the same length of of their chain. So, in order to replicate those meat like um, fibrous structure, you have to run this high moisture extrusion technology on the plant proteins, which consumes a lot of energy and a lot of water as well. So, um, therefore, the sustainability profile of those of those products is probably um, not the not the best one. Um, plus, I mean, we are also facing the problem that um, the capacity of the food system as we as we are building our food today uh, kind of uh, is limited. So there is only um, a given uh, amount of land that you can use to grow your crops. Um, but um, there is specifically fermentation from my perspective um, as a, let's say, technology, um, which also the idea of NOSH is based on, um, which is probably the most promising solution um, to create a food system that is less harmful for the planet uh, because um, it comes with a lot of um, advantages, um, land requirement, water usage, um, carbon emissions, um, all of that is significantly reduced. Um, and the technology is much closer uh, to the go-to-market. Um, I mean, there is all already um, a lot of fermented uh, food products in the market, um, also within uh, within uh, meat analogs, I mean, corn from UK, or uh, I mean, there is enough, there is a lot of, uh, there's meat in the US, so there is a lot of kind of fermented products already in the market. Uh, and then obviously there is cultivated, um, which um, 
is a little bit kind of this um, surprise package. So let's see um, how successful the scientists will be in really improving the efficiency of that technology. I mean, yes, I think it's interesting and it sounds fancy, but in the end, what does what does it help if you can grow an animal meat without having the animal and uh, with a better sustainability profile if at the end it has a price that no one can afford um, so that's uh, a little bit the question mark uh, from my perspective. Will it be possible to really optimize this fancy technology um, to a point where um, you find um, a price point um, that allows you to sell the product in the mass market? And then also, when will that be? I mean, if we have a solution that comes in 50 years from today, that's probably too late. So from my perspective, therefore, fermented, fermented products is probably one of the most promising uh, solutions at the moment. So now that we understand a bit better uh, the problems and the limitation, as well as the potential uh, alternatives that you uh, just uh, mentioned, I mean, to get a, a more complete understanding of the context, if you could maybe tell us a bit more about like, who are the, the, the main uh, actors in the in the market uh, today? I mean, how is that market organized and uh, who are those distinct like uh, producers and, and developers? I mean, what are the... Uh, in a way, incentivization or incentives uh, for them to, uh, you know, work and collaborate or eventually uh, become customers of, uh, you know, startups uh, like yours. Yeah, uh, I mean, um, the the market, I mean, the, the, the food market in general um, has a few giants <laughs> and they more or less own, <laughs> own the whole world of food products. Um, at least in the conventional food products world. Um, within the alternative protein space, um, I think, as mentioned, there has been so many startups popping up, so many brands. If you enter uh, the supermarket today and take a look into the um, into the animal-free uh, shelf, um, you see, I don't know, 20 of different, at least in Germany. I mean, we're also a little bit in a bubble and uh, I'm living close to Berlin, which is even uh, more bubble. Um, but there you see a lot of different brands and uh, the, the selection is really huge. Um, but I mean, typically those um, startups, uh, I mean, you can characterize them. They are very small and the products they launch typically all have the same problems. So therefore, it's, it's really a question of um, how sustainable those companies um, will remain in the market, um, which is also, uh, from my perspective, also a little bit a part of the problem. Uh, because if, uh, as a startup, you, you have your idea, then uh, typically you get funded, and then you have investors who are pushing you on um, your go-to-market. So you need to show up with products fast. And in the end, if your product is re really already appealing um, for end consumers or not, I would say sometimes that's uh, the second uh, the, the second decision that you have to make. You just need to push it on the market, and then you have products on the market um, that might not come with a perfect quality, uh, and then consumers try those products, and they might come to the conclusion that it's a problem of animal-free products in general. Um, that they're, which is not the wrong conclusion at the moment, but um, yeah, it, it might be more difficult to convince them again. Uh, to give new products that come with better qualities um, a second uh, a second try, but besides those smaller um, startups, there is also um, a lot of really big companies um, starting to elaborate those um, alternative um, product lines by now. So you you have huge companies, yeah, probably the the more important customers because for those companies you simply know um, they will also be in the market in twenty years from today. Um, and I think that's the that's the challenge, helping them to come up with really cool products. So regarding a little bit about the uh, regulation framework uh, in place today, I mean, you guys are based in, in Germany. Maybe you have a, a larger view on the European uh, level itself. I mean, what are the regulations in place in a way that are like uh, pushing or eventually slowing down uh, the emerging of this uh, those type of, uh, of product to market? Yeah, I think it's not a German problem, but more a European problem um, where you have the uh, EFSA regulating um, and deciding more or less which products uh, can be grown on the market and which products not. Um, and if your product is based on on ingredients that have not that have not been consumed before, I think it's May 1995 or something, 
then you are considered to be novel foods uh, in Europe. And then you have to run through this novel food application process, which, I mean, I do understand that it's important that we kind of need to regulate which food products are thrown on the market. And we need to just make sure that consumers can rely on the products they can buy, um, um, that they are healthy and uh, it's 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 uh, not, not dangerous to consume those products. But um, just seeing how long this uh, process takes. I mean, we have not yet run uh, a novel food application process, but obviously we had a lot of conversations with different lawyers about it, also with um, different companies uh, who are facing this process. So I think it's a huge um, effort specifically for startups. You don't know when this process ends. So it might be a year, it might be three years, depending on how complex it will be. You don't know what your budget for this process will be. It might be a million, it might be three. So it's it's really an almost uncalculatable risk. And specifically, um, if you are a startup and you, you rely on uh, venture funding, um, this makes it really, really difficult because you do not know when your um, market entry can be. So um, I think... Uh, in the U.S., it's um, it's definitely easier, uh, but um, in uh, in Asia, it's even easier. So I think it's a bit uh, fragmented um, if you um, compare the different regions. Uh, but I, I would say Europe is probably for a food startup the, the most difficult and complex um, area to play in. Um, and we, I mean, we talk about it later a little more in detail, but we decided consciously for um, a specific microbe to work with uh, because this microbe has already been um, consumed before um, 1995 and has already been accepted by EFSA to not to be novel because we wanted to avoid this kind of um, um, difficult process and, and uncalculatable process. Um, yeah, so I think that definitely slows down and also blocks out some solutions. Um, mm -hmm. That's for sure. So to, to close this uh, this section uh, prior to, to jump into, uh, into Norge Bio, I mean... How are the, the, the consumer base seeing this risk of, uh, in a way, Frankensteinization of the, the, the food uh, industry or the food that you're, you're served on your, on your table? I mean, you know, uh, there's also those uh, movement uh, thinking like uh, everything that comes from the ground uh, is uh, the, the way to go and everything that is, uh, uh, you know, processed and industrialized uh, presents uh, maybe at short term or long term like risk uh, for health. Uh, in itself. So how do you guys uh, see that? And what would you say to uh, uh, to consumer that could be, uh, you know, afraid of uh, of this, uh, this type of, uh, you know, alternative in a way? Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I think uh, I kind of get it if we are talking about, um, if we are talking about those cultivated solutions, um, just to grow animal meats um, in the lab. I mean, that sounds a little um, strange. Um, also to myself, this sounds a little strange. I think it will take a bit of time um, before you get used to it. Uh, for other solutions, I mean, in the end, I think if consumers would put more effort in understanding what they are actually eating, and I mean, uh, to be honest, like if you really dig a little deeper into um, industrial animal farming and what animal suffering in this circumstances means, to be honest, you cannot eat meat. Like uh, if you see that, uh, I mean, that's from my perspective, it's, it's, it's hardly to, um, to kind of combine that with the ethical standards of the year 2023. And if you keep that and, and people eat meat and they don't care. Uh, and I think that's just something you need to keep in mind. Um, and um, like for all the other um, alternative protein products, I mean, insects, for example, I mean, I think just um, just give it a try and 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 try to get used to it. Um, and fermented products, uh, I mean, there is so many fermented products in the food industry available, um, but people simply do not know that those products have been fermented, like in cheese, in dairy, in uh, yogurt, in uh, beverages. There is so many um, food products that have been fermented. People just don't know it. So it's nothing that should people scare away in a in a way. But now let's go uh, deeper into uh, into Noj Bio. I mean, if you could maybe share with us like uh, the story behind it. Uh, how did you guys uh, meet with your with your co-founder? Which gap did you guys identify at first that uh, 
led to the the, the current version of the uh, of the product of uh, of Nosh Bio. I mean, in a way, why did Nosh Bio uh, have to exist? Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, I after I left my previous company, um, beginning of 2020, I almost took a year off. Um, just spend time with my kids, uh, catch up a little bit of the quality time uh, that typically comes a bit too short uh, when you are a founder and an entrepreneur. Um, and then end of 2020, I started to make my mind around uh, what I could do next. And um, as already mentioned at the beginning, what drives me is to bring an impact. Um, and so therefore, I consciously uh, looked into ideas that can have an impact uh, and I discussed those with a friend of mine who is an active entrepreneur uh, within the alternative protein space. So he's running together with a friend, um, a small company builder uh, here in Berlin. Uh, it's called Avic. Um, and like their business model um, is to identify scientific teams that um, come up with um, game changing innovations, but that do not know how to kind of transfer their innovations into marketable products. And then um, they just combine those scientists with entrepreneurs. Uh, they also provide a bit of capital, um, support them in uh, setting up the company. And this is how they are acting. And um, I discussed my ideas with him. And in the end, what he kind of said is, okay, Tim, I mean, all nice, but if you really want to have an impact, so why don't you enter food? Um, and yeah, so after, uh, as already mentioned, I understood um, how important the role of the food industry is. It was an easy decision. And then luckily they have been in touch with my co-founder who is a, um, like Philippe Lino. He's a really an outstanding scientist in the field of microbiology, fermentation and microbes. So really uh, one of the kind, I would say. And he had this idea of using fermentation as a platform system to decentralize the global protein production. And with that also um, make it more socially responsible, but also uh, reduce the carbon footprint of it significantly. So um, we got introduced to each other. We met each other. And uh, I mean, I had no clue from microbiology, fermentation and those kind of technologies. So it was really kind of yeah, inspiring to hear this idea and, and what is what is possible also. Um, but more importantly, um, He's also a super, super nice guy. So I know when you when you take the decision to start a company together, um, yes, it's important that kind of the hard skills are there and uh, it, make, it makes uh, sense from a business perspective. But um, equally important, I would say, is that you share at least a comparable set of values uh, because you spend so much time, you have to go through so much also intense times and uh, uh, there it's just helpful um, if you're also a good match on a personal level. And that is absolutely the case for us. So we are close friends. We know each other now for a bit more than uh, three and a half years. So it's um, really a super nice time. And um, yeah, then we took the decision, okay, let's join our forces and um, create NOSH based on this initial idea, which we then shaped. We almost took a year um, before we then incorporated the company to really kind of um, yeah, shape the idea and, and bring it to what Nosh is um, about today. So that's probably a, a good segue. I'd like to dive a little bit on, on, the, on the product side. I mean, if you can uh, walk us through the, the, the process, how does it work? Uh, what type of, uh, uh, you know, uh, microbe uh, source uh, are you using to produce, you know, in, in which forms those, uh, those proteins, I mean, for which application uh, today? Uh, and why did you choose to develop those ones and go uh, maybe uh, select a few of them? Uh, more than others. So if you could help the audience to uh, uh, visualize the uh, the process and understand in a way your, uh, your secret source. Yeah. Uh, and maybe um, while answering this question, uh, I'd like to also dig a little bit deeper into the um, drilling process uh, of identifying the right technology for what we wanted to do. So um, the first thing that we did was really trying to understand where we can have an impact and where we can really contribute in order to to solve the problem uh, that we that we identified. Um, so um, again, back to this initial story, a lot of teams, a lot of money, a lot of products, but none of those products was really successful um, in, in um, uh, tackling the mass markets. And um, the problems, uh, as already summarized, is the quality of the product and the price to sum it up like this. So we said, okay, instead of 
coming up with our own product um, that tries, like all the others, to um, solve those problems. Why not um, trying to support all the existing products by bringing an ingredient to the market that helps solving those challenges of, of those products. I said, you can only base your products on the uh, readily available ingredients. So we said, okay, let's try to create this ingredient that solves the existing problem. So that was kind of the first decision that we made also with the decision of um, becoming a B2B instead of a B2C company, because we had the feeling that um, the impact that we can bring is significantly higher with that route. And then the first thing that we were trying to do is, and uh, again, this is a lot based on the knowledge of my co-founder, because like specifically at the very beginning, I had the feeling I'm not uh, incorporating a company, I'm studying microbiology. So it was so much stuff that I had to learn. And we were talking about so many things I've never heard before. So it was really an intense time for myself as well. Um, but the first thing that we tried was more or less um, to produce a collagen uh, protein, like which is an animal uh, protein that is uh, typically used as a functional ingredient in many food applications. So it provides this kind of gelling or binding or thickening uh, characteristics. So we thought, okay, maybe we can produce collagen in a precision fermentation process, which um, was like the, the overarching idea was um, changing the genetic codes of a, of a yeast in a way that it is not producing its specific protein molecule anymore, but it is producing this animal kind of uh, collagen um, protein. And uh, I mean, first, when I heard that, I, I thought, OK, I'm living in my own science fiction uh, <laughs> movie, uh, to be honest. Um, but then after, I don't know, one or two weeks uh, of tweaking a little bit, I said, OK, let's let's just um, do a first business calculation. And then we just on a sheet of paper, we summarized like all the criteria of the production process. And then uh, in the end, I said, OK, um, maybe I got something wrong here, but we are ending up with a molecule that costs, I don't know, a thousand euros per kilogram. Uh, and the actual price uh, on the market is, I don't know, maybe three, four, five euros per kilogram. So what did I get wrong? And he said, no, no, you got everything right. And, said, and then I asked him, okay, what do you think? Like being optimistic, what do you think? How much can we uh, improve the efficiency of that production process? And below the line, we already saw after a week um, that it will be really, really tough, probably um, impossible to optimize this process and this technology uh, to something that would allow us to produce those molecules at a price where we could find uh, a price point to sell it in the food industry. So, and then we simply took the decision of saying, okay, no, then the technology doesn't seem to be right. So we need to have something else because we need to produce those kind of ingredients at a lower price. So, and then what he figured out is that this collagen um, protein, there are a few microbes that... Um, have the the DNA um, that that could allow them to produce a protein that is almost um, comparable to to collagen, like the whole structure and the the whole setup of this um, protein uh, molecule would be almost the same uh, than collagen. And then we said, okay, if that's the case, maybe we can simply produce those microbes and then try to extract those specific molecules. And if that's possible, then maybe those molecules could have comparable characteristics. So this was the initial idea then. And simply because um, your yields in those kind of production is significantly higher than in precision fermentation, because um, those microbes are producing their natural kind of protein, um, they just produce more. And um, also because you do not do any genetic engineering within the biomass, you do not end up with a lot of biomass that is GMO material and therefore in the European Union can almost not be monetized. So then we, we realized, okay, this, if, if it was possible, could um, bring us to a unit economics profile um, that is attractive for the food industry. And then we just tried out. So it was then simply growing. Um, we, we just picked a few of those um, filamentous fungi and um, there again, the filter was kind of easy. We picked the ones that have this collagen-like genome in that um, donor, uh, domain uh, and that are not seen as novel in the EU, as easy as that. And uh, like the first try, uh, the, the, the first trials we did were already super successful. So we already observed 
um, that there is a lot of functionality in the biomass of those um, of those fungi. Uh, and from there, uh, like over the last one and a half years, it, it was really just a, a crazy ride because, um, and I know it's not typical for uh, starting a business, but there was almost nothing that failed. So really, uh, like within the last 18 months, um, the amount of failures that we had and uh, like the, the the number of things where we thought, okay, maybe it's working like this and we figured out, no, it's not working like this, is really very limited. So, um, and yeah, so uh, this is how we ended up um, with the idea with the fungi and um, based on that, the last one and a half years was really a crazy ride. I'd like to, to double click a little bit on the on the fungi in itself. I mean, like where and how do you uh, you know source that uh, that in a way feedstock? Uh, where I mean, what is the the logistics uh, involved? And then I would say like you can like tell us a bit more about like uh, your production chain today and uh, upcoming one or in the future. How do you see it? I mean, like uh, what are the the, the limitation constraints that you have there and and what's the output of it? Like, I mean, you mentioned that it's like very similar uh, in terms of uh, property and the collagen in itself. So it's definitely an ingredient that uh, is uh, uh, used in many different industries. So in which form does it come out of your uh, production chain? If I could uh, summarize like that, is it uh, on liquid form? Is it like a powder? Uh, how is yeah. it to, uh, to, to transport that as well? Yeah, so um, what is it? Maybe important to mention because this was also a change uh, that that we made. Um, as mentioned, um, at the beginning we were considering to um, extract this collagen-like molecule, but what we realized is that we do not even have to extract anything. Like it's the whole biomass that we produce that provides this functionality and that can be used as ingredients. So. Uh, which makes also um, or impacts also the sustainability profile of the production process significantly because you do not end up with any kind of uh, waste. You can really utilize everything you are producing. And um, how it comes out. So at the moment, um, we do have two different uh, product lines. So the one product line comes out of the fermentation. It looks like a piece of chicken meat. Um, it's it's wet. It's kind of moisty. It has this fibrous structure, uh, and yeah, it it looks comparable to a piece of meat. Uh, it is zero process. There is no extrusion uh, required, and you can use this ingredient to create meat or fish analog products uh, without the necessity to add any kind of uh, functional additives. So it's it's really a single ingredient, uh, meat or fish analog. So there is only this naturally fermented uh, mycoprotein, and that's the only ingredient that your product um, contains. Um, from the texture, uh, like because um, fish and meat, and also within meat, obviously you have different kind of textures and structures. So like tuna is different to beef, but also chicken is different to pork. So, um, and what is interesting, without changing the production process. So what we do is simply we, we we play a little bit with the moisture content. So more or less water content within the material really changes the structure significantly. And you can replicate the structure and the the dense densiness and the bite um, of the product from something that is as bitey as beef jerk, as this dried beef. Really, you can almost not chew it. But you can also have something that is as soft as, as tuna with shorter fibers and uh, and less bite in it. So this is very interesting because it is super versatile. Obviously, taste-wise, um, it has a slight umami taste uh, in this version. So if you want to replicate, I don't know, the taste of beef or the taste of tuna, you have to add some seasonings. But you do not have to add any uh, chemical additives, any any functional additives, no methyl cellulose, no binders, no stabilizers, no structuring agents. So it's really the plain mycoprotein, and that's it. That's the first line of product, and this is typically served fresh, or we can also dry the material to extend shelf life. Um, and you can simply by add a little bit of water or, or any moisture, you can uh, bring it back into the fresh condition within seconds. So it's it's very easy, um, different from, from dried plant proteins. You don't have to leave it 30 minutes soaking um, very quick. Um, and then there is a second line of products, um, which we... Um, I mean, this first line shows 
the magic of the material because the magic of the material is really that it brings this functionality. You don't need any chemicals to um, to add binding, stabilizing, gelling, whatever. It's all there. And um, we can just dry the material and then we grind it to a powder. Uh, and then you can use the powder in different applications. And this really opens us uh, the whole field of the food industry. So we can act as thickening agents in dairy applications. We can um, be binding and stabilizing agents in vegan ice cream, for example, uh, while at the same time, we are improving the measurements of the ice cream. So the melting point is increased by 50%. So it's significantly longer stable in, in, in room temperature. Um, we can act in, in other uh, confectionery products. Um, we can be used in um, bakery applications, substituting eggs from the recipe pie. We can substitute eggs also in, uh, in um, convenience products like sauces or mayonnaise. Um, and at the same time, as the emulsification property of the material is just superior compared to their animal counterparts, you can reduce the amount of oil. For example, if you do a mayonnaise, you create a mayonnaise that is not only vegan, but also has a um, reduced fat content, which makes the mayonnaise just healthier. Um, so this is the second line of product, which can really cater almost any vertical within the food industry. That's super exciting, but uh, you didn't yeah. tell me like uh, what's the feedstock like? Uh, do you cultivate your fungi uh, in house, or is that like raw materials or raw ingredients, or uh, where do you source uh, them to put them into the into the, the pro into production? Yeah, so um, we are having uh, the fungi uh, on stock, so it's 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 just living with us, <laughs> like like our pet. Um, and what you simply do is you, um, when you produce, you take a bit of the fungi, uh, you inoculate it into um, a liquid, like it's it's simply water. Uh, and then what you need to add is the carbon source. And um, there is different carbon sources that we can use. Um, so, for example, we can use um, starch-based medium. So, for example, um, within the potato processing industry, the potato wash water, for example, contains a lot of potato starch. Um, and the water at the moment is seen as, as um, dirt water. So it's it's the cost position, more or less, for the potato uh, processing industry. We could use the water to feed our fungi and make uh, high nutritional proteins out of it. Um, but we can also use uh, side streams from the brewing uh, industry, so like uh, malt extract, uh, so there is a lot of side streams uh, in the food in, from the food industry that we can use. Um, and there, again, as we are using the whole biomass and not uh, a single um, target molecule, the quality of, of the outcome of our product doesn't really change by changing the feedstock. So it's, it's a very robust fungi. It's just yeah, utilizing and um, you can harvest no matter what you, what you feed it. So this is uh, another advantage. And again, it helps to um, reduce the or improve the sustainability profile of the production process because we can use raw materials that are seen as waste at the moment and we can just feed the fungi with it and produce the highly nutritional um, proteins that you can use to come up with really cool animal-free products. Just last question that uh, production process and thank you so much for uh, you know uncovering that for the for the audience here. Um, I, I like to understand like, what is the, the, the quantity and the space necessary to produce and in which quantity comes out and in what's the length as well of that uh, process uh, today and uh, at scale, do you think it can be it can be shortened or is it uh, still like a, a minimum of like uh, days, hours, months that needs to, uh, uh, to, to, be, uh, to, to be there for uh, the necessary time to, to grow the, the fungi? Yeah, I mean, we <clears throat> we have just started um, to produce at industrial scale, um, which when successful, we are able to produce um, at the moment up to 10 tons per week uh, of material. So it's already um, production at scale. Uh, in terms of um, land requirements, let's say, um, the in general, you can uh, envisage the production process as the beer brewing process. So it's quite comparable. You use those large bioreactors, um, you add water, you add the carbon source, uh, you add your fungi, um, and you need to do a proper aeration because the fungi needs to have oxygen in order to, to grow. Um, but that's the setup. And uh, like the, 
production that we are running. Um, it was a uh, at the moment it's a twenty two thousand liter um, uh, tank uh, that we are running, and to harvest it it takes roughly three days, so not more. So and you end up with almost seven hundred kilogram um, of of, um, of product um, and. The biggest potential probably um, that we see is to increase the tighter, so to get more um, uh, to get more product, speed up the process. I think that's probably like uh, that's limited, but three days is is, is already fine. Um, so you can run it, I don't know, twice a week or so. Um, it's a good utilization of the infrastructure. Um, yeah, and we assume that we can like based on the experiments that we've run in, in the lab um, and the titers that we that we have observed in the lab, it should be possible to increase the, the titers by factor three almost, um, which is a huge potential to reduce cost further. Um, so at the moment we are producing already at roughly 10 euros per kilogram. So imagine, um, imagine you can um, triple your titer so basically, you cut your cost by three times, um, and uh, this cost reflects working with the CMO. Um, so there is also this intermediate margin uh, in that price, um, and we already have our own production uh, site secured. So um, we will start running our own uh, fermentation capacity, 270,000 liters um, of total capacity, probably by mid uh, of next year and then again you can probably cut your cost roughly by 40 percent give or take so we really see the potential to uh, reduce the production cost of our uh, ingredient to a level where it is competitive with animal proteins as well and right now what's the the green premium in a way uh, if you can put it like that compared to the animal protein is like how comparable it is as of today, and you mentioned that you can get very close. But what's the the the, the reference today? Uh, you mean in terms of a carbon footprint? No, or... not in terms of green premium. In terms of uh, cost, uh, simply if ah. you compare uh, your product versus uh, animal proteins, uh, you know that could be used in the same application. Uh, what is yeah. the the difference in terms of cost that uh, you still have today? Yeah. So I mean, it's a bit depending on which um, on which animal you you take a look at. I mean, beef is uh, the most expensive one, so we are already cheaper than beef. Uh, we are um, probably in the in the range of pork uh, already. Uh, chicken, there is still um, a way to go, so we are a bit ex more expensive than chicken at the moment. But um, it's completely realistic that we can also outcompete um, chicken in the near future. And then there is no other um, animal protein source um, that, from my perspective that is cheaper. So I think it's possible to become um, the cheapest protein source, which, I mean, the idea of NOSH is uh, to make animal-free proteins to become the number one protein source in human diet. So therefore, we need to improve the quality, that's for sure. But we also need to reduce the cost um, uh, and the price point um, because average households cannot afford to pay a premium on their day-to-day -day food product. So... Therefore, that's absolutely the challenge that we need to face. And we are quite confident that we are able to achieve that. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, this uh, financial aspect uh, of it. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about your, your business model per se? I mean, are you guys, like you mentioned, that uh, uh, you have uh, your own factory in the making right now? Uh, is that something that you see at scale? Or would it be like licensing uh, your recipe and your uh, processes to uh, other large uh, manufacturer, what's uh, what's your idea there? I mean, at the moment we are still working um, towards the um, the let's say the the commercial proof of concept. So we have not yet sold products. Um, so we are in different collaborations with potential customers at the moment, but we have not yet a final commercial collaboration ongoing. So we are not selling the ingredient, but I think this will change within the next three months, give or take, um, maybe a bit quicker even. And I mean, the moment we prove that we can produce microprotein at scale um, at a price point that allows us to sell it with positive contribution margins, plus 
knowing and I mean this is the feedbacks we receive from all the commercial collaborations ongoing that the contribution into taste profile and texture profile um, of our ingredient compared to any other solution on the market, even the other microprotein solutions on the market is really outstanding. Um, then it, it will really be about um, scaling um, because I mean, then obviously um, you, you find the market and to have an impact, then you need to really um, scale and, and serve the whole industry. Um, and the idea is to scale our production capacity uh, in-house. I mean, we have um, also IP rights secured um, around the production process itself. There is also a couple of IP right protections uh, or patents filed um, regarding the final uh, applications and the product and the fungi that we are using. So there is um, some protection um, included as well. So maybe licensing is also something that we would consider. It's not our top priority at the moment. Um, at the moment, we are really following this approach to build up our own um, production capacities as well. Because, um, and I, I think that's also something that is important to mention, um, alongside the whole product and technology, we also develop this concept that allows us to use existing food grade infrastructure for the production of our fungi. So the, the only reason why, I mean, we've just incorporated last year in February, the only reason why we can already say that we are running a 270,000 liter fermentation site on our own is because we can simply use an existing infrastructure. So we just rent this infrastructure. We haven't invested a single euro into CapEx at the moment. We need to do um, a few retrofittings of the existing infrastructure, so we need to invest a little bit, but it's not comparable to um, the capex intensiveness of typical fermentation projects. And that allows us also to scale significantly faster because you do not have to build anything. You just use what is already there, invest a little bit of money, and then you are good to go. So, um, And this is the concept that we are following at the moment. No, definitely super, super interesting. Uh, in terms of like, I mean, you mentioned pre-commercialization, utilizing like um, uh, fungi that has already uh, been used into the uh, the food system. So uh, any regulation uh, that you need to comply or necessary certification to go to market? Uh, and how was the, I mean, in a way, those roadblocks there, how did you uh, overcome them? Or maybe you're in process to overcome them? I mean, um, regulatory-wise, luckily there is no novel foods or comparable processes that we have to run through. I mean, obviously you need to apply for a food uh, producer, um, which we are doing, and then there is a few ISO standards that you need to um, that you need to be in line with at least. You need to have your HACCP systems installed in your production process, but also in your supply chain. So there obviously, I mean, there is a lot of kind of quality measurements um, that you need to implement in order to meet the requirements of food security, food safety, and food quality regulations. But it is not this kind of comparable regulative process where you have to run a huge um, application. It's it's not comparable. It's more smaller measurements that you need to implement, some documentation, SOPs that needs to be um, that need to be in line. Also, training of your staff. We just like last week, the whole team did this in Germany. It's called Red Card, which is kind of a qualification for dealing with foods. Um, those kind of things you need to do, but it has significantly less complexity than novel foods, uh, and I would say it's not comparable. Last question uh, on my side. I mean, how do you uh, compare uh, Nosh to uh, any other uh, alternative in the market in terms of competition? I mean, uh, how do you guys are different or, or better? Uh, how do you, uh, if you could, you know, give us a little bit of an overview of the competitive landscape uh, that you guys are playing into? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I would say um, you definitely need to name the other microprotein players uh, in the market and specifically those who are also um, establishing themselves as B2B um, suppliers. So they are kind of following the same approach, let's say, because they serve the food industry with microprotein as an ingredient. Um, the ones in Europe that I would name here um, is definitely corn. I mean, also by far the, the most experienced company. I mean, they're already in the market for, I don't know, almost 20 years. Um, then we have enough. We have Mycorina. Um, that is probably the ones that I would mention. Uh, and that also have comparable um, progress, I would say. Um, so enough in corn already on the market. Mycorina, I think not yet, but 
um, probably close to as well. So the difference uh, compared to those companies is like, um, first we are using a different fungi. So they are all using the same strain that corn uh, started to work with, um, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. So all the patents from corn have expired. So that's why um, they could simply use the same strain and start working their process on the on the same strain, um, which maybe was an easy decision back in the days when they started their business because, yeah, you simply know it works because there is already someone uh, who showcased that it works. But in the end, like the ingredients uh, that you produce um, has the same characteristics, the same advantages, but also the same disadvantages. And therefore, I can, we, we have quite some USPs compared. So first, um, the first thing that I uh, would mention is the fiber length um, of Fusarium menanatum, which is this strain that corn uses, is measured in millimeters, while the fiber lengths of our strain can be up to 10, 20, 30 centimeters which simply provides without any extrusion or anything. Like it's just the way it gets out of the fermenter. And if you want to do meat products, then obviously this is a huge plus because you have this muscle-like fibrous structure in the product uh, and you do not have to kind of extend that by extrusion or anything. So that's a huge plus first. Then second, we have this functionality, which is also kind of unique with our fungi. Um, so it has the binding, the gelling, the stabilizing, the structuring in itself. So you do not have to add anything. If you buy the corn products, for example, um, they are not vegan. They are only vegetarian because they have to use, have to, use X, um, to provide this gelling and structuring kind of um, characteristics. Um, also, the products from Enough, they are using carrageenan and other um, additives in order to bring the physical structure into their products, which we do not have to use. So this... Um, allows you to come up with products that have significantly shorter ingredient labels, but also it's cheaper because you do not have to add too many different ingredients. Um, uh, also, there is no processing required. So we just take it out of the fermenter and it's ready to use while the, uh, the um, microprotein from corn and also from enough, you have to do the steep freezing and then you have to heat it up again in order to extend the fibers a little bit and, and stabilize the structure. That's not required for our product as well. And again, it improves the sustainability profile because you do not need the energy um, and it reduces your process cost because the complexity of the production process is simply reduced. And then um, last but not least, as uh, the most important use piece, we do not have any off taste. So which is also kind of unique uh, in the microprotein world. Um, so, and this is something um, that we know from from different collaboration partners from us. They say if you work with um, Fusarium Venanato microprotein, typically when you go higher than 20% of inclusion rate, you start to work, you, you need to work with masking agents because you get this um, bitter taste, this off note. And with us, it's really, you can, you can create a hundred percent, a product with a hundred percent inclusion rate. So there is nothing in it, only our, our microprotein. And still the product has a very pleasant taste. So this is the main advantages um, that I do see. Fantastic, very exciting. So that uh, a lot of uh, cool stuff are happening. So what's uh, what's next for uh, Nosh Bio? I mean, what are the, the steps to, uh, to for you guys to, uh, to scale? I mean, uh, we've just successfully uh, reached industrial scale. So this was a big um, check mark that we wanted to have. Uh, we are at the moment working on the onboarding of our first customers. This will happen within the ne next three months. So most likely within Q1 next year, there will be the first products uh, in the market, at least in Germany, um, that are based on Nosh's microprotein. Once this has happened, um, the next big thing on our list is um, the next fundraising. So we closed our seed round early this year. Uh, we are planning to start our Series A fundraising process then uh, probably mid to end of Q1 next year uh, to raise the funds to then really um, scale further. And scaling further also means to start considering internationalization and onboard um, the next production sites. Very exciting. So 
More on the personal note, uh, it's something that I always ask to uh, my guests here. I mean, what would you say to people who, uh, you know, feel uh, demoralized by all the already visible uh, consequences of uh, of climate change? Are we doomed? Yeah, I mean, I'm from time to time, I'm also a little uh, scared um, <laughs> about it, to be honest. Uh, but I think, I mean, from my perspective, um, Complaining doesn't help, so it's it's about proactivity and try to take measurements. And obviously, not everyone can become an entrepreneur, or not everyone should become an an, an impact entrepreneur properly. But um, I mean, I think um, remain positive and be proactive. Try to adopt your own behavior. Uh, I think that um, um, yeah satisfies at least myself satisfies a lot. So, for example, I'm really trying to avoid planes. Um, we had a business trip earlier this year to South France. So we took a 19 hours train ride to get there. I can just say, yes, it's it's painful when you are on the train, but uh, when you reach your destination, it just feels good because um, you didn't trap um, uh, or you didn't fall into the strap of, of using the plane just for your own convenience reasons. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't help to complain. We we need to try to act, find countermeasures, um, reflect our own behaviors, um, yeah, and and just work towards a more sustainable um, society. Yeah, that's the only way. Any uh, things that uh, people listening to the show, founders, experts, investors can uh, can do to uh, help you? I mean, reflect your own diets. Definitely, <laughs> that helps. Um, and I mean, if you if you are interested, um, I mean, as I said, uh, we we are starting our fundraising next year. I mean, um, uh, for for all the specifically uh, investors that really want to have an impact and and want to just help uh, to enable this transition from animal based to animal free diets, um, let's get in touch. Let's talk. Uh, it's like. Um, the filter that we have for the fundraising is really mission alignment on uh, on number one, and then on second is business ethics. Um, and yeah, so always happy to get in touch with um, cool people um, that sharing comparable sets of values and uh, are on the same mission that we are. Um, yeah, happy to connect. Any question that I uh, should have asked that I didn't for this uh, first part of the show? Uh no, I think uh, I think you tackled um, you tackled quite a lot. I would say so. Maybe what we haven't talked about is the most strategic view of of Nosh, and I just want to give a, a sneak preview. I mean, all we do is already quite some some cool stuff, but we have just recently um, started the collaboration with Ginkgo Bioworks, which um, is about creating our next strain of, of fungi. Uh, this one will be novel. So we are we are working on something uh, really cool um, that can not only replicate um, the texture um, of meats uh, and here specifically, uh, I mean, for all the white meat application, we are kind of well prepared with the existing strain that we are using in terms of taste as well. Has this slight umami taste, but when it comes to red meat, you have this iron-like bloody taste, um, which is difficult to replicate at the moment, but we are working on some really cool stuff to tackle that as well in the near future. Very exciting. I can't wait to, uh, to hear more about it. Thank you so much, Tim, for your uh, time, your incredible insight, uh, this amazing work that you uh, that you guys are doing with Nosh Bio for a healthier and a, and a better world and cleaner world. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me. It was a huge pleasure. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech Footnote podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and see you next time.